I don't know if there's a stereotype or a misconception, but I think if you're not used to working with underserved populations, you may believe that there's apathy and a lack of interest in taking care of one's health, and that's not what I saw. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. I'm Alex Merwin, Head of Growth, Healthcare and Life Sciences Startups at AWS, and today we're doing something different. So enough from me, I can't wait to hand it over to Danielle. My name is Danielle Morris, and I'm a public health practitioner and health equity champion who has worked both in the United States and globally to ensure that all communities everywhere have the resources they need to thrive. Now, I work with AWS and have the pleasure of working with organizations around the world that are leveraging technology to advance global health equity. I'll be stepping in to place a spotlight on the incredible and inspiring work led by award winners of the AWS Health Equity Initiative. Today, I'm joined by LightSprite founder and CEO, Swati Survey. On this episode, we'll have what is sure to be an inspiring conversation about LightSprite's unique approach to helping people cope with everyday stressors through gaming. LightSprite is a Pacific Northwest-based healthcare startup that is both a mobile game developer and digital therapeutics manufacturer. But mostly, they're passionate about helping people help themselves live healthier, happier lives. LightSprite's holistic approach appeals to multi-generations, including all ages, to a range of evidence-based skills and lifelong compensatory strategies. Whether it's a lack of access due to personal circumstance, stigma, or an unappealing experience, LightSprite's digital health tool, Cinesprite, has proven to reach those who need help the most but don't respond or engage in therapy, including underserved populations, such as rural communities and low-income folks. It complements and fills a gap left by traditional mental health services. Swati is an award-winning healthcare innovator and thought leader with a track record for successful and disruptive technology-based healthcare businesses. Now that I've piqued your interest, be prepared to be inspired. Let's get into it. Swati, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm so curious to learn about LightSprite and all that you do. If you could tell us about the journey and your background, what brought you to founding LightSprite? Sure. Thank you, first of all, for having me, Danielle. It's very exciting to share our story with you and your audience as well. My background and what inspired me to start LightSprite is it's literally the culmination of my life's work. I'm an engineer by training. And prior to LightSprite, I started my career building solutions that patients themselves could use to empower themselves to improve their own health. I started this journey back in the late 90s, early 2000s. It was well in advance of the development of the field that we call now digital health. At that time, a lot of the technologies in healthcare were really focused on the enterprise. There were CT scans, there were blood analyzers, there were potentially EMR systems. Those were still in their infancy back then, believe it or not. I was interested in applying and building technology for individual users or patients. And so that's been my North Star. I was part of advanced R&D groups at large Fortune 50 companies such as Eastman Kodak and at Nike. 
when I started my career. Um, and I was part of an innovation lab, actually. And this was back before innovation labs were a very commonplace, but we were called advanced R&D. And I was essentially an entrepreneur in residence. So not only was I thinking about product, but I was thinking very holistically about commercializing the technology and developing it, but then scaling out the operations so that it could be deployed and the businesses themselves would generate two to 300 million in revenue by year five and seven. So that was my charter and that's what I worked on. And at that time, I started getting exposed and became aware of wearable technologies. And that's when I was recruited by Nike for my work in wearable technologies. Um, I wrote the company's first wearable tech patents. That was very early in my career. And then along the way, I'd worked in a variety of roles. Um, most of them have been around either commercializing software or even involved with uh, other aspects of healthcare. 15 years ago, I was looking at AI and its applications to healthcare data sets while I was at Microsoft. I worked at an insurance company as well, helping them with corporate strategy right when the ACA was launched. So it's been a longstanding passion of mine. And throughout all of those experiences, what I kept coming across was that it's really not about technology per se. It's about can you motivate an individual to take the actions they need to live a happier and healthier life. So I had, I'd always found that individual motivation is the key to actually help improve someone's health. And some of the early work I had been exposed to, you know, was around 2000, was around the use of gaming and healthcare was right here in the Pacific Northwest at the University of Washington. And there it was shown how games could impact healthcare positively. And I had kept tabs on that particular approach for many years. And when I launched LightSprite, I saw that there was now commercial readiness through consumer adoption of gaming consoles and platforms such as the Wii and the Xer Gaming. And at that point, now there were 40 peer-reviewed journal studies showing that gaming could improve health outcomes. But when you look at the business of healthcare, the cost is in the chronic conditions. That's where a lot of the money is spent. So, you know, if you could build effective self-help tools in the form of games, you could actually move the needle in many ways. And it was way back in 2013, I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna launch LightSprite. And then we created Cinesprite, which is a clinically validated mental health video game. The other component though, in launching LightSprite is the data platform, because through my work in all these different settings and being exposed to different aspects of healthcare, self-help tools are important, but you have to, especially for chronic conditions, the care provider has to have a seat at this table. So we created a platform where it can be a self-help tool, but we can also integrate into care settings. And we're providing unique first-of-kind data back to the providers, which allows them to scale care and deliver care remotely, which now since the pandemic 
has become incredibly important and valuable tool. So I'm really curious, you've talked about Cinesprite and you've talked about your journey to establishing both LightSprite as well as your digital health tool. Could you tell us more about Cinesprite and how it was received by clinicians and insurance companies? Sure. I was actually very surprised at how much receptivity we got in our early stages from clinicians and insurance companies when I showed them the tool, um, because typically clinicians can be skeptical and can be a very hard group to get technology adoption from what I've seen. So it was received quite warmly. We couldn't get the product out fast enough, which was kind of funny. And then when they saw the impacts we were having on patients, that excited them even more. One of the things that um, we've spoken about in previous conversations is the difference between the gamification of mental health care versus gaming to support mental health care. Can you help us to understand the differentiator? Sure. And many people are very familiar about gamification, I think, even now more so. But it's interesting that gamification as a concept within healthcare was actually better understood than in most other industries. But what gamification is, is applying gaming mechanics in a non-gaming setting. So if you think about progress bars, you think about leaderboards, badges, those are some very common gaming elements. Leveling up, if you will, those are the kinds of gamification elements. What we've done is we've actually created a full-scale gaming experience. At least that's the, that was the original intent. And our players feel like it's a game. And so it's an end-to-end experience. There is a character that your socks the Fox is the main hero of the game. And you're trying to help Socks become a Zen master. And you're and Socks becomes a Zen master by you learning evidence-based tools and techniques and strategies, as well as mindfulness practices. So that's the experience. So it's a journey and it's a world exploration game that you get to drive and control on your own. Thank you for that. So speaking of journey, can you tell us about the process that you went through to ensure that Cinesprite was a clinically validated mental health tool? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because I think we're one of the first digital solutions to have any sort of clinical validation. I know there are a lot of apps out there. And coming from my background, I felt as though it was really important to have validation that if someone were to use this, there was going to be some sort of positive impact. And that's the ethos of LightSprite. We're a therapeutic gaming platform that helps people manage chronic health conditions and our data insights improve outcomes. So when you look at it that way, clinical validation was foundational to the company. And so we we built things very differently than what most typical app developers were doing at the time and still do. We had to create our own systems back then because there was nothing available. We had to create our own systems. We started literally putting out behavioral health, the kinds of screens that you would see in your doctor's office. We started delivering those and collecting that information online. And so we had to build the systems. We had to build the back end to make sure that we could collect the data. We were literally running a healthcare study online in 2013. 
And we were able to do that because we had chosen AWS very early on as the technology platform we were going to build on because of its privacy and security compliance capabilities. And had we not had that, it'd be really hard to build the backend to allow us to even collect the data. Clinical validation, we had started thinking about that even before we had started building any kind of code because you had to build the architecture accordingly. And then we had to build all the systems. And then we worked with clinicians to say, okay, if we're going to clinically validate it, what are the measures that we need to take? And at the time, we were actually taking five surveys. Like that's a lot for people to fill out, but they were doing it too. And then subsequently we settled on two of them. But from the beginning, it was very much a deliberate process and a deliberate decision to pursue the clinical validation. And some companies have gone down that path and then they subsequently abandoned it because it was too complicated for them or due to, you know, pressures from that they would were getting from their own investors. They said clinical validation isn't germane or necessary for their solution. Lightsprite is an award winner of the AWS Health Equity Initiative that's focused on increasing access to health services, particularly for underrepresented and underserved communities around the world. Can you talk about Lightsprite's focus on reducing health disparities and care and how you're working to leverage technology to improve access, particularly for those underserved communities? Yeah, you had asked me about the receptivity of clinicians. One of the really surprising things for us is how well we were received by clinicians and insurance companies that were working with underserved populations across the country. So we had worked with our first set of clinicians and underserved areas in Arizona. And we worked with Arizona's first integrated behavioral health clinic. And it was very surprising to me um, because my usual experience was of, um, you know, like a, a arm's length kind of, you know, eyebrow raising skepticism of like, I don't know if this is really going to work. I was so surprised at the openness and the excitement and actually the presumption of competence that I was received with when I went down there was really interesting. And it was a really fascinating spot too, because the clinic itself was in an industrial park. So what they had done was they had taken a factory warehouse and refurbished it and turned it into a clinic and they had offices and patients would come in from all over the region. The patient population profile was 50% Medicaid, 99% low income. I think about half were veteran as well. And here is where I really learned about the access issues and really got a, a real experience about what did that mean? Because I spent several days in the clinics working and training the clinicians themselves, but then I also saw the patients and got to talk to them. And so for me, that was a really eye-opening experience. And what I learned through that was a lot of these patients were driving, taking a bus two or three hours. It took them two or three hours by bus to get to the facility. And yet here they were to get care. So just access was difficult. 
a lot of them were transient, like they would move from one place to another. So staying connected with them was another challenge. I, I don't know if there's a stereotype or a misconception, but I think if you're not used to working with underserved populations, you may believe that there's apathy and a lack of interest in taking care of one's health. And that's not what I saw. And when I would talk to the case managers, they had a lobby ambassador. Everybody there was really trying to do their best, including the patients, to get them pointed in the right direction, if you will. And so that's where our work first started. And so clearly from an access perspective, you know, it would take them two to three hours to get to a clinician. Now, at least with mental health, now they had a tool in their pocket that they could use whenever they needed it. And that's what people were finding. And, and within weeks, the main case manager's like, hey, so I, I got to tell you something. And I'm just braced for like, oh God, something's gone wrong. What happened? And she's like, I want to share these comments with you. And she starts reading these comments. We launched our beta in 2014. And so this was 2015. So very early days. And these are adults, men and women in their 40s, say in early, late 30s, early 50s, all underserved saying, this is a life-changing experience for me. I'm no longer sad. This is making my day more, more manageable. It was really stunning because the tool itself lasts like six weeks. And well, we saw story after story after that from that clinic whether it was the clinician saying, you know, when we would share the data saying, hey, these are your stats or here's how you are in relative to the general population, we're seeing them journaling more than meditating. And the response from the clinicians like, I'm surprised they're even meditating because we don't even, we talk to them about journaling. So we would expect that, but we never talk to them about meditating. And so you had an underserved population that was never exposed to meditation and doesn't really know about it probably just in their day-to-day, -day, now starting to learn a new skill on their own. There was a story in the clinic where there was a woman who was so disruptive in the lobby that they had to call the police. And by the time the police got there, she's sitting in the chair quietly looking at her phone and the staff was like, well, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm with Socks, who's the game character. And Socks is actually helping her guide her through some, uh, uh, an instance where she had her, um, was in a, in, a, in a very distressful state to the point where she just really couldn't control herself emotionally. And this was a patient who had anger control issues and the clinic knew about it. So this was something that was not new for her, but now she found a different way of coping. So it was access. It was also, and I think part of access, because you talked about unappealing experiences, you cannot underscore how a person will not do something if they're shamed, ridiculed, it feels like work, or they feel like they're being nagged. Nobody will do that. I mean, even the most underserved populations and individuals who are high functioning, nobody likes that. Yet we build experiences and technology, especially in healthcare, that do precisely that. 
Um, and I think part of the appeal was that this met people where they were. And if you ever have looked at someone's phone from an underserved population, it is loaded with games. It is loaded with games. And so this was a medium that they, they were drawn to. They liked it. They used it. They were very familiar with it. And now they were able to take care of themselves and improve their health in a way that was enjoyable. Because again, we were building a gaming experience. We weren't gamification. That's so interesting. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that topic. So one of the projects that you're working on is to provide access to mental health care for Indigenous youth. That's such an underrepresented and underserved population and that oftentimes lacks care that's responsive. How are you working to ensure that they're receiving the care that they need? Yes, Rise Above is the organization. They're also based in the Pacific Northwest, and they're a wonderful organization that is really focused on helping Native American youth reach their full potential. And they're doing that in a very holistic way. They start first with providing physical places for physical fitness and education. This CEO is a former women's basketball star, Jackie McCormick. And so they start with that. And then they also believe as part of the physical, like the whole well-being needs to be mental health. And so where the mental health solution that they have chosen to provide that, that sort of tool to Native American youth. So we get integrated into their programs. And the important thing is that it's integrated. It's not a, oh, by the way, you should also take care of your mental health. It's a part of your well-being is your mental health. And this is a great tool for families because while we work mainly with adults, what we do see is there's bleed over and crossover when the kids see their parents playing. They're like, I want to play. And as you know, as many people know, gaming is very popular with youth, right? And so I think it's just a, a wonderful extension, right? Similar to the underserved population, adult underserved populations who love games, so do kids. And so that's a new area for us. And we're excited to explore those opportunities with Rise Above. Swati, you've talked about all of the success that Light Sprite has been able to achieve through Cinesprite. But I want to help people understand your broader journey and both the good and the challenging aspects of running a business and, and leveraging technology to improve health and well-being. So can you tell us about a difficult decision Light Sprite had to make in its early years and how it was resolved? Yeah, I mean, I think I kind of touched on it a little bit early. You know, we strategically made the decision to pursue clinical validation because at the time, and this is like, because I've worked in innovation for so long, I have my own perspectives, but, you know, this was my company and I was, I was building a company that would have a very strong, solid foundation to grow. And if you're in healthcare, part of that foundation has to be clinical outcomes, as I mentioned before. You know, that was very counter to what I was even getting asked by health insurance, like even potential buyers or purchasers at the time. And I should know that post-pandemic, we're selling to employers, right? 
but a difficult decision was because at the time people wanted to know and I actually wrote a blog post about this in 2016 and the research now, now the research has come out talking about engagement, but everybody would ask about engagement, but they would use these metrics. And again, social media being in its infancy, but all these metrics that were basically driven to drive content consumption, that's not aligned with an outcome, like it's not aligned with a health outcome. Right. And but people had no other way of of understanding or trying to figure out how does a solution work? And logically, it makes sense. Yeah. Are people using it? Yes. But if you dig deeper into that question, and I said this in those blog posts many years ago, I said, is it a good thing that someone is accessing a mental health app five times a day? Like, is that a good metric? Is that the behavior you want to drive? So early on, one of the big challenging decisions was like, well, do we give people what they're comfortable with or do we do something that's right for the patient? And because that would literally change our commercialization trajectory. You know, and subsequently, there have been companies who have followed the user acquisition pathway and popularity pathway. There's no clinical validation, but they're very popular, um, which is great. And, you know, some people certainly see value and they certainly see some help. But again, my company was trying to help those individuals that had a mental health challenge. It wasn't going beyond just the lifestyle of wellness, but we were really trying to move the needle. And subsequently, that's what we saw. And that's what we see is that this game reaches people who will not engage in therapy. It's higher acuity than we even thought we would reach. So it's people with moderate levels to severe levels of anxiety and depression. So that was, but that was a tough choice because that meant our commercialization pathway was going to be longer. Again, we had to literally build tools. Like at the time, you would have to partner with a university and get an IRB to collect data. And you'd have to have a program manager to come in, administer the survey collect the pre and post data, blah, 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 blah. And so it's understandable why a lot of startups didn't want to do that, but we hacked it. We did it all online. And like my CTO was basically the program manager. We had the consent forms online. We started collecting information online. And then we got, with our publications, we found a partner, an academic partner who analyzed the data for us. So, but still, you know, and also the adoption by buyers, that being said, even though we would get initial traction, when you started to scale, there was still a ton of skepticism and we needed to show that it worked, especially gaming itself has such a stereotype and still continues to have a stereotype, despite the fact that you know, everybody, the common misconception and stereotype, which still exists 10 years later, even though the data is different, that it's, you know, the main gamer is an 18 to 34-year-old male who plays violent first-person shooters in their basement. And that's not, if you look at the data, the average gamer today is a woman in her 30s and 40s. And she plays to relieve stress. And she plays a mobile game. And that's what we built. And now... The gamers that grew up playing Donkey Kong and Frogger are now over 50 years old. 
gaming as an industry is bigger than motion picture or films, movies, and TV. So we had to dispel so many stereotypes, and we still do. Like it's it's we still do, which is it still blows my mind away how many times I just sit there and correct people. So so those are some of our challenges, you know, from the commercialization pathway because now. Now we get asked, well, you've been around for so long. Why haven't I heard about you? Or why aren't you bigger? I'm like, because it's a brand new care mod. First of all, we followed a pathway to clinically validate a tool. Um, so you as a buyer, whether you're an employer, a clinician, or an insurance company, you can trust that if someone uses this, there will be clinically relevant outcomes that an individual will, real, real, will realize. But secondly, the data that we're also providing is really important in terms of delivering care, helping your employees with burnout, or remotely monitoring your patients. But then the other component that then we have to say is that takes time, but also then getting people comfortable and getting them to understand that gaming isn't a niche. It's what everybody does. Whether you play poker, you play bridge, you play Scrabble, you play Word with Friends, or now maybe you do play on a console. You might be doing Minecraft, you might be doing Roblox, you might be doing um, Clash of Clans, right? There are ranges of games, and a lot of games are actually self-exploration games. Some of them can be quite beautiful. If you actually delve into the world of gaming, it's very diverse. Because the audiences are diverse. You know, they're, they're one of the games I used to play a long time ago was called Pocket Frogs and you like grow frogs. It's kind of silly, but it was kind of fun. You get to, you know, and you play for a few minutes on your phone and then you were done. And that that's the point. And that's another thing is that we've designed the game to be a micro intervention. You use it a few times a day. You learn some skills or you practice some techniques because you're going through an episode and that episode that I talked to you about the woman in the clinic, that was just the first one we had heard. That was the first one. Then we started hearing stories of other people, teenagers in the bathroom at school having panic attacks using us. To we got an email one time from a user saying it was the middle of the night and she was a Medicaid patient in Indiana. She's like, I pulled out your app in the middle of the night because I wasn't feeling well. And it brought me back to center. And I think she she did that because her husband couldn't drive her to the ER room. And this was a woman who's bipolar and had depression and had a history of suicidality as well. We've heard these stories time and time again. Swathi, I'm so interested and inspired. Lightsprite has achieved so much success just by being clinically validated alone. But yet you have so many inspiring individual cases of how Cinesprite has achieved um, individual success for those who, who need mental health care and support most. So I'm curious, what's on next on the horizon for Lightsprite in terms of both product development as well as overall impact on mental health? Yeah. From a product perspective, we've been creating new analytic views that can be used by the enterprises. We're also working, coincidentally, we're working with the AWS team. As I mentioned, the company's whole premise was about delivering data insights. And I think now we may have enough of a data set 
where we can start building predictive models and indicators of individuals that might need help and that can help with suicide risk prediction. So that's some of the stuff that we're working on. Some of the other things that we'll be doing is we'll be reintroducing some features that we had in our beta. So um, we had, this was before Pokemon Go was launched, but we had an AR style butterfly walk. Um, where it encouraged people to go walk and catch digital butterflies. It was really cool. And it was funny because I remember this was like four or five months right before Pokemon got launched. And there were clinicians in the clinic. <laughs> they were telling me, like, I think the manager was like, yeah, the clinicians keep trying to walk around the clinic, trying to catch these butterflies. So it was pretty funny. So we'll probably on that front start introducing some new features to encourage a holistic approach to mental health. And one of those things is go take a walk, go get moving, right? Um, I mean, it's going to be the light, lightweight. It's not like a full-on Pokemon Go, but that's not the point of the game, right? The point of the game is to inspire you to go do something that you should be doing anyway. So that's what we're looking forward to. And I've been sharing some of the new reports to some employers. I've been sharing our insights with some of the insurance companies that we're talking to. And they're pretty excited about that because it gives them analytics and insights. They hadn't been, they don't, it's it, either they have to send out a survey, which nobody fills out. And it's very questionable, the data that you can get back to the fact that it's new insights that they're not even able to get, even if they were to be able to get people to respond to surveys. So it's, it's pretty exciting. Absolutely. So I have one last question for you. What advice would you give to other aspiring founders in the digital therapeutic space? Um, <laughs> you know, healthcare, I knew when I was going in, I wasn't naive and I knew it was going to be a long road, like just, I, just from what I had seen and the advice that I would give to anybody is that, first of all, be very clear on what your objectives is and what you're trying to build and why because a lot of people will question it they may not understand and that those questions are not necessarily about the premise or the value of your solution but it's their own confusion if that makes sense <laughs> so you've got to be very clear and deliberate and the more innovative or more different the solution is going to be your conviction has to be that much stronger but also with healthcare and the commercialization aspect of it, you really need to have a strong, solid foundation of capital to go and, and build something that's going to be substantive. Because what I've seen commercially is that unless you have that, and it's optics or whatever you want to call it, but people respond well when, you know, and I, I don't, you know, I have my own personal opinion about this, and I don't think this helps innovation, but people respond well when they see there's a bunch of money going behind a company. Unfortunately, usually to get that kind of money behind a company means they've got some very specific marching orders and pressures to grow, which I don't know if a healthcare company can even meet. And you've seen this time and time again, where healthcare companies that have gone to raise a ton of money end up doing things, very unnatural things that end up being illegal. <laughs> and I'm not even talking about Theranos, but 
there's outcomes. I think it was called Outcomes Health or something. It was based in Chicago. And there have been a number of them. There was an insurance company startup in San Francisco as well. I think it's very important to understand your capital runway or your pathway to that and then the implications of that because it's uh, innovating in healthcare is a very long proposition, even though it's much easier to get to commercialization these days. But you still need to raise a significant amount of capital and then that can drive you into doing some things or put you in positions that you really have to do soul searching, if you will. Well, Swati, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about your journey and the amazing progress and success that Lightspride has had to increase access to mental health care. And thank you, audience, for joining me today to learn more about the incredible work led by Swati and Lightsprite to increase access to mental health care for all. If you'd like to learn more about Lightsprite, Cinesprite, or Swati, check out Lightsprite's website. And if you are leveraging technology to advance health equity for those who need it most, consider applying for the AWS Health Equity Initiative. Thank you and join me next time for an inspiring conversation about technology as a mechanism for advancing health equity. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. The best way to support the podcast is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also appreciate your reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have ideas on how we can improve the show, please let us know. Our feedback survey is in the show notes. See you next week.